We're going to talk about the grief pilgrimage today. We're going to read Psalm 84 together. And I want to offer you two thoughts to set the table in case you think this isn't applicable to you. The first thought is this. And the longer you live, the more you see this. Involuntary loss, God allows it to be threaded into every life without exception. And here's why you really got to learn how to do the grief pilgrimage and have the expectation that it's going to be a part of your life going forward. Unresolved grief plus time equals depression. Let me say that one more time. Unresolved grief plus time equals depression. So I want to read Psalm 84, then we'll jump in. Because Psalm 84 is describing a pilgrimage that every Jew was required by God to do annually, sometimes more than once per year. And it was grueling. And it involved involuntary loss. And it really helps illustrate principles of the grief pilgrimage that we're going to talk about today. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord with my whole being, body, and soul. I'll shout joyfully to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow builds her nest and raises her young there at a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, how happy are those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. I'm going to stop for a second. The objective of the pilgrimage was greater intimacy with God. The objective of all this hard work that they did to go to Jerusalem to meet in the temple was to expand their souls in greater intimacy with God. That was the goal. But between home and the goal was the Valley of Baca. This translation calls it the Valley of Weeping. And we're going to unpack that today. Happy are those who are strong in the Lord, who set their minds on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When they walk through the valley of weeping, not if, when. It'll become a place of refreshing springs, where pools of blessing collect after the rains. They'll continue to grow stronger. Each of them will appear before God in Jerusalem. O Lord God Almighty, hear my prayer. Listen, O God of Israel. O God, look with favor upon the King, our protector. Have mercy on the one you've anointed. A single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. For the Lord is our light and protector. He gives us grace and glory. No good thing will the Lord withhold from those who do what's right. O Lord Almighty, happy are those who trust in you. Let's start with a little (coughs) ancient history uh, quiz. What is this? Sitting Shiva, ever heard of it? It's a really interesting cultural practice from the Jews who made this pilgrimage every year. Here's what it is. The Jewish custom of sitting Shiva 
It's an example of how to grieve well. It's an example of what it means to mourn. Traditionally, when a close relative dies in a Jewish family, they sit Shiva like this for seven days. Seven days. Family members sit on stools or on the floor to show that they've been brought low by their loss. There's no housework done. No normal activity around the house for those seven days. People, those Jews, would often make a tear in their outer garment or wear a torn piece of ribbon on their chest to show that the fabric of their very lives had been torn. When guests come to call, they're not to initiate conversation. And if they speak, they're not to speak of the loved one. What's the purpose of that? The purpose of sitting Shiva is not to distract from grief, which is how we tend to handle it. That is not the purpose of sitting Shiva, but rather to intensify it, to feel the loss deeply, to face it fully, and to do it in community. Because empathy is connecting with the emotion that someone is experiencing, not exactly the event or circumstance. So I'm going to give you the sermon in a sentence. I'll try to be done in 30 minutes. Grieving well brings new healing and joy when loss is fully faced, fully felt, and followed through to find renewal at Jesus' feet. Grieving well. Do you know somebody who does that? Grieves well? Do you know somebody who doesn't do that? You probably know more who don't. To mourn, you see, is to be brokenhearted. The heart in the Bible is the control center of a person's life. Thought, emotion, choices flow from and through the heart. When we say we're brokenhearted, we're saying that the deepest part of us, every part of us, has been affected. When your heart's been broken, you don't just get over it. Americans tend to want that. It doesn't work. You don't just get over it. Because going forward, after that loss, after that broken heart, you're going to think, you're going to feel, you're going to live differently because of it. And you know what God wants? He wants your soul expanded, not shrinking. Thus the grief pilgrimage. You know, every year these Jews, wherever they lived in Israel, they had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. God ordained it. And no matter where they lived, didn't matter where they lived, they had to walk through the valley, the, uh, valley of Baca. The Valley of Baca. Let's see it. Uh, next slide, please. No, that's not it. <laughs> We'll see it shortly, the Valley of Baca. I'll just describe it to you. It wasn't a specific place in Israel. There were hundreds, thousands of valleys of Baca. No matter where you started from, in Israel, walking to Jerusalem, you had to walk through a Valley of Baca. What was it? A place of great difficulty. Uneven terrain. No water. Stretch you really thin dry, arid, 
climb up and down, somewhat exhausting. There was a valley of Baca. No matter where you started from in your journey for greater intimacy with God, you had to walk through the valley of Baca. That's it. That's it. No, that's not it either. <laughs> but thanks for trying. God bless you. <sighs> we won't worry about it. Yeah, wherever they lived, they had to walk through a place of loss to find greater intimacy with God in Jerusalem at the temple. They all understood it. It was common, and nobody liked it. Nobody enjoyed it. It wasn't easy. There was only one creature who liked the Valley of Baca, and it was the camel. Let's look at the camel. Only a camel. Only a dumb camel that is so well suited to uneven, difficult terrain and can store water in its hump, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 gallons. Human beings don't like the Valley of Baca. We don't like the Valley of Grief. Camels might. You're not a camel. You don't have to like it. You've got to learn how to walk through it. If you're going to expand your soul in processing involuntary loss, you have to learn this. Americans don't know it very well. We expect things to work well. We don't expect loss. Most of the world understands it a lot better than we do. So, the grief pilgrimage, the Valley of Tears. There were f at least five things common to it, okay? The first is this. It was a really strenuous journey. It was a lot of work, actually. <clears throat> and they had to plan ahead for it. They had to create margin for it. The Israelites, most of them, they raised flocks and herds and crops they were farmers. It was agricultural work. That was kind of the backbone. It was an agrarian society. If you have a little hobby farm and you're going to leave it for a week or 10 days, it's strenuous work to get ready, isn't it? You got to plan ahead. You got to work ahead. And then you got to walk through the Valley of Baca. <laughs> and you know it's coming. Yeah, you had to set your heart on pilgrimage. And normal life was disrupted. And you know what? Processing grief well disrupts normal life. You have to create margin. You have to be willing to let the rhythms of your life be disrupted in order to fully face your loss, fully feel it, and then process it at the feet of Jesus. It's no small task. You know, rhythms of work and everyday routines being set aside for what? For something God deems more important. You reaching a place of an expanded soul, greater intimacy with him, greater connection with people. See, there's a purpose. It's not just enduring for endurance sake. And it's not self-flagellation. And you can't go into the valley of weeping and pitch a tent. You don't want to do that. Because some people do that and they never come out. Talk about that just a little more. Another
component of the grief pilgrimage, the Valley of Tears, visible progress was slow. And it was. The Judean wilderness, it just looked the same day after day. A desert, really. The landscape looked pretty much the same day to day until finally Jerusalem and the temple, the objective, came into view. And the grief pilgrimage is just like that. It might take days, it might take weeks. Strenuous journey. Normal life disrupted. And the destination actually was uncertain. They didn't always make it to Jerusalem. They didn't. Because so much was out of their control. All the careful planning, creating the margin, making the decisions, setting your heart on the pilgrimage. It didn't always result in the goal being reached. Because the pilgrimage could be scuttled by bad weather, bandits, illness, injury, and your grief pilgrimages. If you set your heart on Jerusalem, greater intimacy with God, sometimes they'll be scuttled. And you may have to start over without reaching the goal on that particular pilgrimage. The process was complex. Grief really is that way. It is a complex process. And we're going to talk about it. What I'm going to talk about next, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with originally. And I think her five points were valid, but she fell into disrepute because she was rigid about how linear they needed to be, and that's not really true. And her work has been improved on by many others, including Christian therapists and psychologists. But let's start with this. Grief. What's it triggered by? It always starts with loss. Always. Healthy grief resolves loss. Unhealthy grief deepens and prolongs loss. And loss can be one of two things. It, be, it can be concrete and external. Say the death of a loved one, the death of a dear friend. You've recently faced that. That's easy to see. Grief that is concrete and external. Loss, that is. And loss can also be, and this is important, especially as you get age 35 to 45, 35 to 40 if you're a female, 40 to 45 if you're a male. Loss can be symbolic or internal. Have you ever known anybody who had a midlife crisis? And for reasons that they didn't or couldn't explain, they traded in a perfectly good life, perfectly good marriage, perfectly salvageable family. Bought a motorcycle they didn't need, couldn't afford, and ran off. Where did that come from? Loss, symbolic and internal. How so? Let me connect the dots for just a minute. The most vulnerable win window for women to have a midlife crisis is age 35 to 40. How so? They have unspoken dreams of what their marriage might look like. And they finally decide, my biological clock is ticking, and I, I'm afraid this frog is never going to become Prince Charming. 
There's a big uptick in women getting rid of their marriages aged 35 to 40 for this reason. They're not processing their loss to grow a deeper, wider heart with greater wisdom. Unhealthy grief is really dangerous. For men, the window is age 40 to 45. What's the symbolic thing that is the loss? They have unspoken dreams about what their career might look like, about what they might have accomplished by, their, by, by this point of time. And internally, they're frustrated and they feel a loss of opportunity. I'm not getting my best years back. My 30s, 20s and 30s are gone. What lies ahead, I'm going to have less strength, less opportunity, less time. That's the internal symbolic loss that creates the temptation for guys to do a midlife crisis and trade very salvageable things in for a false dream that becomes a nightmare. So, five ingredients in grief. First is denial. What is that? We tend to be good at it. You feel shock. You feel numbness. You feel disbelief. You feel overwhelmed. You don't want to face it. You want to push it down. You want to turn away from it. Denial. The second ingredient is anger. Anger. Really important emotion. Very dangerous. It's like nitroglycerin. Handle carefully. So important yet secondary because you see anger is like smoke from a fire. You can blow away that smoke all day long. It just keeps coming. You've got to get to the fire. I'm not going to make the case for this right now. It's easy to make. The book of Psalms shows three primary roots of anger. Hurt, either physical or emotional, frustration, you really care about outcomes you can't control, and insecurity, things you truly value in life are threatened or have been lost. And you got to validate your anger, but you can't stay there. How do you validate anger but not stay there? Well, at first you recognize protest, anger. It comes from our desire to fight for life in a fallen world. It's not bad. It's just bad to pick, pitch a tent there and not come out. You know what happens if you remain in anger or protest? Depression. Mm -hmm. It's not the only cause of depression. Oh, it's a big one. How does that happen? Partly by mourning in a false belief. You may not like this. Mourning in a false belief, I deserve better from God. God owes me my script. And if you mourn in that false belief, you're not just going to mourn the loss and be angry about it. You'll get angry at God. And then bad things come. And mourning that way, out of the false belief, I deserve better from God. He owes me. No, he does not. We owe him everything. And he doesn't have to follow your script. Would you please learn that? And sometimes he'll thread losses in that you won't understand and they won't make sense. 
And if you get into the false belief ditch, I deserve better from God, look out. Trouble ahead. Mourning in that false belief does not bring the blessing of comfort. It brings the curse of bitterness. Haven't you seen it? People who are in seasons of loss who get worse and worse and madder and madder and sadder and sadder. Well, there's a lot riding on this. The third component, ingredient in grief, bargaining. This is really common. Bargaining. Could be internally or externally focused. It's the if only thing. Well, if only I'd done something different, we wouldn't be facing this. Or if only you had done something different, we wouldn't have lost this. The reality is we're powerless to undo most losses. Reality sinks in. You can't reach the goal. You can't turn the clock back. You've got to get past bargaining eventually. Everybody does it. Fourth sorrow. Sorrow. Heart-wrenching sadness. Tears. You think you might not stop crying if you feel fully and face your loss totally. You know, we're designed to cry our grief out. Ever heard of a tear duct? You got some. Do you know how to use them? <laughs> Finally, acceptance. You can smile at the future. See, as you process your grief, as you walk through this valley of weeping, and these five ingredients confront you, you can get to a place of releasing that which you've lost so that the parts of you that were attached to that person, that goal, whatever it is, they now become available for what God has next for you. And you can move on. Resolution. Resolution of grief. Maybe this sounds neat and orderly. Maybe it sounds like ingredients in a blender. Neat and orderly. Oh, linear, neat and orderly. Not. You know what it's like? <laughs> you hit the button on the blender. <laughs> Ever do that? I've done that. Sometimes the lid slips free and there's stuff everywhere. And it's just life looks like a bigger mess. Why did I do this grief thing that Baldy advised even for a minute? Look, life has gotten worse. And I feel worse. Blenders can be very messy. Grief usually is. Fully facing grief. Let's talk about it. Yeah, Judean wilderness. Each year Israelites traveled to Jerusalem for wherever they lived. The goal was intimacy with God. They had to do it. God ordained it. So do we. Some community required. You know what the Jews did? They never did the pilgrimage to Jerusalem alone. Never, ever, ever. And you shouldn't do your grief alone. Don't expect that you can do it. Some community required. 
See, healthy grief is a relational process where we put words to our pain, where we talk it out, where we come to, meaning, uh, come to terms with the meaning of our loss in community. Grief's a relational thing. It's meant to be expressed to others. This makes Americans uncomfortable, men especially, to name your fears, your hurts, your frustrations, to learn to put words to them, which is underneath your anger, which is so easy to get stuck in. What does Romans 12:15 say? Weep with those who weep. How can you do that if they won't weep with you? If they won't name their pain? If they hide it, if they suppress it, if they're stoic. Feeling, okay? What I'm at, I'm talking about how to feel fully without being controlled by emotion. Do you realize what a big deal that is to your well-being for the rest of your life? Jonathan Foer, interesting guy, <clears throat> he had this quote, I spent my lifetime learning to feel less. Stop there. Do you think that's what the Christian life's about? Don't say it out loud if you do. That's not what the Christian's life, life is about. Jonathan Foer I spent my lifetime learning to feel less. Every day I felt less. Is that growing old, or is it something worse? And then he said this. This is profound. <clears throat> you cannot protect yourself from sadness without protecting yourself from happiness. <laughs> I'm not going to make the case. It's in the Bible. Not that exact quote. Jonathan Foer did not write a book of the Bible. But it's in the biggest book of the Bible. <laughs> it's in the book of Psalms. It's there. You've got to feel fully without suppressing. Really? Is that in the Bible? Yes. Psalm 6, verse 3. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? How long? This feels so unfair. How long? If it feels true to you that God is not being fair, what do you do with that? You pray it to him unedited. You name it. Unfiltered. Psalms, the biggest prayer book in the Bible, the biggest book in the Bible, 70% is processing grief, anger, hurt, frustration, insecurity. Did God ever say to David, why do you bring that to me? What's wrong with you? Handle it and then come to me. Maybe you think, no, the Psalms, that's a book of praise. 70% is processing anger and grief. Read it. Count the verses. I have. It's real. It's true. Why is it there? We need a coach. We need a mentor. We need a path forward. We need to learn how to do this so we can be more intimate with God and have an expanded soul and find joy. You can't protect yourself from sadness without protecting yourself from happiness.
Take it to the bank. Feel fully without suppressing Psalm 116. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Feel fully without suppressing. Feel fully without self-pity. This is difficult to do. It's a pilgrimage. You might turn your ankle and not make it to the destination and have to start over later. Circumstances may arise where you don't get relief and you have to make the commitment to come back to that pilgrimage later. Feel fully without self-pity. This is super interesting. The Lord says this to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. <clears throat> he said <clears throat> to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. And you think, okay, God is, God is into stoicism. No, context, context, context. First Samuel 16, where this verse comes from, is preceded by First Samuel 15, one chapter, two years. What does First Samuel 15 talk about? Samuel and the Lord grieved together because Saul has gone off the rails. And they're both deeply sad because they have lost, Israel has lost its first king to foolishness. So they grieve together. It's about two years. Then chapter 16, it's two years later. Samuel has pitched a tent in this valley of self-pity. And God's saying, basically, Samuel, your mourning has morphed into self-pity. It's not just unproductive. It's destructive. Pick up your flask of oil. Go anoint David. I've got work for you to do. Time to stop grieving the loss of Israel's first king. Stop living in the past. Focus on the future. I've chosen a new king for you to anoint. There may be a time where God says something like that to you. And you've got to come out of the valley of weeping and move on to Jerusalem. God says something fascinating in Hosea Chapter 7, verse 14. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, but they turn away from me. If you've struggled with cutting, this is not meant uh, to cause you shame. Why do some people slash themselves, but not turn to God? If you've studied it as I have, talk to therapists who work in this area as I have, they'll all tell you it's a false attempt to manage emotional pain without dependence on God or people. You may look at cutting and say, it, that has nothing to do with cutting. You just don't know. It has everything to do with cutting. Everything. God wants you to bring your pain to him. He wants you to cry to him, not just cry. He doesn't want you to stuff it. He doesn't want you to get stuck in self-pity. He wants you to learn greater intimacy with him. How will it happen? As you learn to bring your whole self to him, which is what Psalm 84 talks about. Follow through to rest. Psalm 62, verse 1 and 5. My soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. My hope from him. Psalm 132, verse 2. 
I think I'm going to stop with this because I'm up to 32 minutes and I promised I wouldn't keep you. Psalm 132, verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Let's just take a minute and park on what it looks like to wean a child. Anybody here ever done that? Oh, you have, but not many. That's odd. There's a lot of mothers here. Every one of you was weaned eventually. You may not remember it. You know what it was? It was ugly. It was ugly. How do you know? You weren't there. My wife and I have had five kids. A child being weaned must submit to loss in a painful process it cannot understand. That's what weaning is. If you wait to wean a kid until they say, I agree, Mom, I'll be weaned now. What happens? Terrible things. Do you know there's no iron in mother's milk? None. What's the basic building block of red blood cells? Iron. Can't make them without iron. (laughs) You don't wean that kid and let it have what it wants indefinitely. Hemophiliac. Terribly malnourished. They think it's good for them. You know better. You think some things are good for you. God knows better. Sometimes you've got to be weaned. What would a baby being weaned say if it could talk? Just think out loud together, okay? Don't you hear me crying? Can't you see I'm hungry? Don't you even care? <sighs> kinds of things we say in our heart to God when he doesn't give us what we want where he starts to take it away and we want it back. If a baby being weaned could talk, this was the perfect meal plan! I wanted to be fed this way forever. Rivers of living warm water. It's clear what I need. What's wrong with you? Are you stupid? a baby being weaned could talk. How dare you coo and smile at me, yet you refuse to nurse me? You must be cruel! It's what we think toward God, but sometimes don't say. You know, there's many losses and other mysteries in life we have to accept unexplained just like a baby being weaned. There's a better diet coming. There's a healthier body coming. God wants to grow you. And involuntary loss is going to be part of it. Psalm 30, verse 11. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That's the purpose of this process. Would you learn to walk it, that grief pilgrimage? You won't get it right the first time, second. 
I don't think we'll ever get it perfect. Would you learn to walk it? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for Psalm 84. Thank you for Jesus. Boy, did he walk the grief pilgrimage. Wow. Garden of Gethsemane, loss according to your will, a mountain of it. Painful things threaded in. And he didn't really want to do it. He said, could this cup of sorrow please pass from me? But your will not mine, in the end, your will not mine. And he wept and he cried, and it was like, his sweat was like drops of blood. That's how much stress he was under. Could you teach us how to do that so that we could find the joy at the end of the pilgrimage? Amen.